0: tuesday night and uh i could say it's warm here but it is you know it's just it's just hot but i say that every day with sacramento especially especially in the summer my name is charlotte i'm going to be your host for the next hour and uh we've got a really good show for you it's 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 a topic that really fascinates me you know battlefield ghosts i've never had the opportunity to go to places like Gettysburg or anything or any place like that that had major battles i've been to cemeteries you know, like uh, military cemeteries. I haven't been to Arlington, but I've been to the ones in San Francisco and some of the ones here near Sacramento, like the Dixon Cemetery, which is really huge for military deaths. And it, it is a surreal feeling, but I've never had the chance to go to actual battlefields. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest tonight. Um, I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. And uh, we cover every county in the state of California. So if you need paranormal help, that's what we're here for. All right. Anyway, uh, tonight's show, uh, my guest is Adrian Lee. And I'll let him tell you about himself because you guys know how I am. Uh, But I'm really, like I said, I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about battlefield ghosts. And he's got a real cool background because he also has hunted ghosts internationally over in the UK and places like that. So he's got some interesting stories to tell. And you know, the, yeah, I, I had a chance to be in England a few years back, and uh, wow, I've never been to a place so haunted. You know, and uh, it was really, you know, almost every every place we went was you know was active, and so it was really a unique experience. And when you think about how old things are over there as opposed to here, you know, I mean, maybe we're talking for maybe early eighteen hundreds here. When we get out to the East Coast, West Coast is even younger. is even older. But when you get, you know, into places like England and Scotland and Ireland and all those places, that's a lot of that's a lot of history over there. So anyway, let me bring uh, Adrian on. And he can tell you a little about a uh, bit about himself.
1: Hello, Charlotte. How are you? Thank Hello, you for you. having me on your show. I appreciate
0: that. Well, I'm really glad to have you here.
1: It's a pleasure to be here and of course I love talking about all things history related and you're 100% right everywhere is haunted in Britain mainly because you know we have all the old buildings but we're not allowed to knock them down there's so little space available in Britain we're the size of New Hampshire so you can't just knock things down and there's no land to build on so it's very odd I don't know if you witnessed this when you were traveling around Britain, but you may have a high street or a main street in a town and it dates back to the 15th century and there's all the timber beams. And then you have a Starbucks or a McDonald's actually in that (laughs) shop front. And it's very surreal because where else are they meant to go? And I don't know if you're aware of this or your viewers are aware, but McDonald's and Starbucks change their livery. So when you're in an ancient building that's from the 15th and 16th century in in a high street, They don't have that famous red and yellow livery. It's all in green and it has to be done very subtly. So, you know, we have got that history and you're absolutely right. Everywhere is haunted. And I think most Brits probably believe in ghosts as opposed to, you know, the American figure, which I think is at about 30 percent. So we are we are believers. We've had a history of Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol. We've had Shakespeare and Hamlet. We do have this long history where I think within our culture, it's ingrained that ghosts exist i think you've got some catching up to do here in america
0: (laughs) i think so too Um, and then the other thing i found was that you know when you go to these castles a lot of the stories are so sad or you've got angry ghosts you know the the the, it goes to both extremes because 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 again you know people were lost in battle people are waiting for loved ones etc etc so it's a very unique experience
1: I think what you've touched on there is Brits are very miserable and bitter people. So it's just it's grumpy old men is what that is more than likely. But yes, the medieval period where those castles come from they did some terrible and horrific things which were of the time you've got to remember this is the gothic period there's plague one in three people died in europe of the plague in the 1350s you know and then you have no food because there's no one to plant crops or harvest crops so you then have starvation and more disease and then you have war because the town next you has got food and you don't and there's this kind of perpetuation of, of doom and misery, and you're trying to build the highest spires, you know, and cathedrals to try and reach God to have an understanding of why this would happen to you. But I'm not going to complain because out of that period came the Renaissance and the rebirth. So mm-hmm. perhaps we needed to have the darkness before the light arrived.
0: That's and what, what I love, like you say, what I love about the UK is that they embrace their ghosts, not like here. Mm-hmm. They're, well, it's getting better now, you know, since, since the TV shows have been on, people are getting more open minded with it.
1: I think but... that comes from another place as well. I think Britain, generally speaking, is a very secular society. Only five percent of Brits go to church. So I think when you have that underpinning quite a lot of American culture in terms of your politics, it's even written on your money. I think you're mm-hmm. not going to embrace ghosts fully when you have that weight of, of religion pressing you down on those issues where in britain um we are a more liberal society generally speaking but you know you don't have that weight of religion pressed on you when so many people aren't going to church and are, are atheist.
0: how did you get into studying history like you have
1: well 10 minutes ago you were me to introduce myself and i never got round to it but uh, i'm an author if you met me in the street i'm an author and i write books um i got into um history primarily because i grew up in a really rough part of east london um in a large comprehensive school of sort of 2000 children. And London's a very densely populated area. It's the biggest capital city in Europe. I think there's 12 million people when you include all the outskirts to that. So having grown up in that environment, um, I was very good at painting and drawing. And what took me out of that was going to university to study art. Well, as soon as I did that, there's actually laws in Britain that say if you study any art-based subject, you have to include 25% art history and that's across the board whether you study photography whether you study theatre set design and of course what they did in the 1960s was generate a genre called art history which before hadn't really existed greatly as a subject so having studied art and drawing and painting i then got more interested in the art history aspect and then throughout my qualifications as i rose through to the highest levels um, i found myself studying art history Well, when you study art history at the highest level, what you're gaining is skills. You're gaining research skills. You're gaining the ability to find things. So I have a background in history and I lectured history, but then that can be applied so well to paranormal investigating. And it was a large awakening for me when I first realized on my early investigations with the Luton Paranormal Society in North London, there in Bedfordshire, that you could actually communicate with ghosts via the equipment. So all of a sudden as a historian, I can actually talk to someone that was there. Whereas previously, you're just doing research and, and making your best guess of what it was like during that time period. So those two things, as you know, sit together incredibly well.
0: Is already question room. In that room. Yeah. Are the ghosts more residual or still active at the caskets? Um,
1: that's an interesting question. Castles are incredibly old. Of course, the Normans pretty much came and started building castles from 1066 onwards because they didn't want the Brits to take the land back from them. So they persecuted a lot of Britain. So we are going back uh, a thousand years. Um, It depends on the energy over the course of my career. Ghosts that are more than sort of 150 to 200 years old tend to dissipate in energy. So, that question is reliant on how much energy is available, whether there's the anniversary of an event that picks up the energy, whether you bring energy with you, whether there's a sense of collective. Uh, prayer if you like there may be lots of chapels in some of these castles so it's a difficult question to answer it's going to be dependent on which individual comes <laughs> through how old the castle is and what's going on around it but uh, as a very rough answer to that residual would probably be more of the way to go with some of those older buildings for sure
0: well, I mean, on that line in that do you think that like if, if there's a popular place for for people to go ghost hunting you know, and, and there's always people going in there and through there. Do you think that that, that tapers the, that, that energy of, uh, of the ghost away?
1: That's a very interesting question. And I've experienced that in this country. I'm actually talking to you from the moment at the moment from Minnesota. And I've been over here for, for some considerable time now. You're, you're complaining about the hot weather. It was snowing here last week and I'm, I'm sat here freezing. So don't com- don't complain too much. Would be my advice. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's there is a there is a sense, you know, that there's lots of places in this country that I wouldn't go and investigate because I think the ice hole was being fished out almost. Mm -hmm. If you want to spend your time in peace and quiet, if you want to um, reside in in a proper. You used to live in. Uh, I can think of several examples, and this might be controversial based on your previous guests, but there's uh, the Vallisca Axe Murder House, and every Ma and Par team goes through there every weekend without any filter, no one looking to see what they're doing. If you investigated that building, you're getting all the stuff that the people have brought into the building that has nothing to do with that event. And, and this may be controversial based on your previous work, but the Lizzie Borden House strikes me as. As that as well. I, I actually spoke to Lizzie Borden in Massachusetts at her graveside. You're there in the peace and quiet. You've got no one to interfere. No one's come along and done anything ridiculous, you know, at that site. And uh, if you were Lizzie Borden. You know, would you go back to a house in spirit where those events happened, whether you were guilty or not? Would you want to reside in a place where all that took place and and how you went through all that stress and all that grief and aggravation seems very odd to me? And I think you're right. There's lots of places, especially within the Midwest, that have so many ghost hunting teams go through there every weekend. I guarantee you the original ghosts for those buildings are no longer there. In my own personal opinion, it's much better for me to investigate properties that have never been investigated before so other teams and other people are following my research rather than me following other people's research.
0: Well, I agree with that because I had a couple of friends, EVP experts, that that felt that some of the EVPs that people were getting, they were manifesting themselves. Sure. And that, you know, if you think hard enough and you wish hard enough, you could… Manifests. And there was a particular place here near Sacramento where people would go in and there was supposed to be, a you know, it was supposed to be haunted. It was a restaurant. And as it turned out, it was never haunted. It was because the owner of the restaurant started the story. And of course, all the ghost hunters went and they kind of put this ghost in there, you know, the imprint of the yeah. ghost.
1: That almost sounds like a thought form. Um, There's a place in um, Wisconsin that claims Al Capone visited and I've searched every newspaper in that small town of 5,000 people back in the 1920s and 30s. And there's not a single mention of him being there. Uh, It would be unusual for him to be there. But bearing in mind, he was based in Chicago and he had a property further north by about three hours. Um, It seemed to be perpetuated by the owners. Um without any historical evidence to back that up. People often ask me which are the most haunted buildings in America? And my response tends to be it's the ones with the best PR.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Now when you talk about a lot of battlefields, which battlefields have you gone to?
1: Um, I focused, well, it depends whether we're talking Britain or America. The first battlefield I investigated was the uh, English Civil War in 1645. This Battle of Naseby in Northamptonshire took place um, on the 14th of June of that year. And uh, I, I can touch upon that. It was very interesting. The one thing... I took from that investigation, which I thought was absolute genius. And I can't take credit for this personally. But when you investigate a battlefield, if you've got a small basement or a small hotel to investigate, you can cover quite a lot of that, depending on how big your team is. You just mentioned you've got quite a large team there in California, and you can cover that with equipment and get about most rooms suddenly when you're doing a battlefield you look out and you've got three square miles and you're thinking what what am I going to do here so what we did at the Battle of Naseby investigation on the anniversary of the battle and uh, there was 1400 people massacred um, in this battle is when you find with a metal detector any historical um, kind of remnants or any relics relating to the battle by law in Britain you have use a gps marker so people had gone over that site with a metal detector and every time they find a musket ball they have to mark it with a gps location Um, And that goes on to a database. So what we ended up doing was looking at the biggest concentration of fines of musket balls over that large area. And where the biggest number of fines of musket balls were was the heaviest fighting. And then that was the area we investigated. And I just thought that was genius. I I can't take credit for that personally, but I thought that was a pretty good way of doing things. Um, And of course, the investigations I've done over here have been in relation to my book on the U.S.-Dakota War. So when I first started researching and doing the investigations of the 1862 U.S.-Dakota War, um, those battlefields were the ones I investigated here in the Midwest. And again, lots of loss of life, um, lots of conflict on both sides, the Dakota Sioux and the U.S. Army. So it's been interesting, different battlefields, different eras, different countries.
0: one over uh in the uk and and tell us about that one and then we'll talk about a couple of us ones
1: the person who asked the question right at the very beginning was very perceptive because in 1645 if you're investigating that battlefield and it was very interesting because i've investigated it a couple of times on each time we did it on the anniversary and in the darkness we started seeing people walking towards us and we thought this was paranormal but several other paranormal investigation teams in Britain had had the same idea. And it should almost be like a a film, you know, a comedy film where suddenly all these teams arrive in the same field on the same night. So we asked them about their evidence and so forth. But yes, uh, most of what we got on the battlefield and it was horrific fighting. I mean, the parliamentarians um, against the Crown, if you like, and this fighting had been going on for years. And it got to the point where both sides were very unhappy. And when the parliamentarians routed uh, the opposition about a mile behind the battlefield, they have all the wagons with all of the women cooking and all of the the ammunition and all of the the, the wagon train, if you like. Uh, And and they just routed and massacred all of them as well. It had got to that point in that battle. But it's mostly residual. Um, We heard gunshots going off as EVPs. Uh, And in Britain, we're not allowed to own guns unless you're a farmer. And there's no farmers out there shooting anything at two or three o'clock in the morning. So guns are very uh, rare to find in Britain. Even our police uh, don't carry them. Um, so very odd to hear those kind of EVPs. We could hear screaming. Um, so that's a lot of residual things. When the battles I've investigated here in the Midwest were taking place in 1862, obviously, that's not as far back as 1645. And at that point, you do interact with people. There's people that you find that want to talk to you from both sides that we have a record of because they have their mustering in and mustering out details. They've got their pension records. Uh, there's written accounts of the battle. So it was much easier to find individuals investigating the battles in this country of this time period. Uh, back in 1645, other than the main protagonists and the, the generals and the people in charge, you're, you're not going to know the people on the ground. Those people on the ground didn't even have birth certificates or death certificates, and they couldn't read and write. So your chances of, of doing any historical research based on them would, would be impossible.
0: So what's the...
1: <laughs> um, One of the things I found very interesting, it was two things that happened. Birch Cooley. It is one of the most haunted and interesting locations I've come across. And we did have permission from the local historical society, and I did include the Dakota Sioux in my investigation as well. I I really didn't want to be another white historian writing about another white European's history. So it's fully inclusive and and it talks about both sides in a very... um, holistic manner if you like but two things sprang to mind on that battlefield that i thought were very interesting uh, a gentleman came through without any prompting and said his name was notto jensen and as you may be aware minnesota and the midwest is jam-packed full of scandinavians they're the only people crazy enough to live in a temperature this cold and, and eat raw fish so he came through and it gave me a chance to to look him up. It's a very unusual name. And I did find his uh, pension record. I did find his mustering in and out papers from Fort Snelling, which is in Minneapolis. And then I discovered that his great, great granddaughter was still living in the local area based on Ancestry.com. So I randomly contacted her, said that I'd spoken to her great, great granddad on the battlefield, and she was happy to come along and stand on the battlefield. And we had the press there and we took photographs. So there's lots of examples within my work, and that would be one of them, of a soldier coming through, telling me who he was, giving me details about his life, and then actually finding them historically. The second thing that I thought was very interesting is during the course of that battle, this was the greatest loss of life for the US Army during this conflict. Only a couple of Dakota Sioux were killed. And we have record of that because Chief Big Eagle actually made a note of that in a biography after the event. And it's very rare to have anything written from the Native American side of things for that period of history. It's mostly rhetorical, of course. But we discovered that over 90 horses were massacred in that. They got pinned down, they got encircled for two days, and and 25 soldiers died, 90 horses were slaughtered. During the course of that investigation, we heard horses neighing, we heard horses making all kinds of terrible noises as EVPs. And then members of my team actually saw a white horse running, backwards and forwards across the field. And it was only through doing research later on, retrospectively, that Captain Grant, who was actually leading them at the time, had his horse tethered and it was white and he didn't want his horse to die. So he cut the reins with a saber and the horse was seen for the next two days uh, running backwards and forwards across the battlefield in a state of panic and shock. And we'd actually seen that. So those were two instances of that battlefield that stick in my mind.
0: That's just, you never really hear a man like, you like literal horses like that. You don't hear that.
1: I will tell you an interesting uh, snippet of information. I believe you can only haunt somewhere if you can think yourself there. So when we die, if if, if I say to you, Charlotte, let's go and haunt my parents in East London, I'll I'll fiddle with the lights and and scare my mother and father. Uh, And it's probably, you know, two o'clock in the morning there right now. Um. I can only do that because I've been there. If you have to think yourself somewhere, we don't have a physical body. You don't see ghosts coming out of cemeteries and walking up the street to their house. You don't see ghosts getting into ghost cars. This is a consciousness, this is energy. So we think ourselves into a place to be able to haunt it. Now, that's a reasonable statement to make, right? You know, you have to think yourself there to haunt it. The problem with that, in terms of animals, is an animal has to have an awareness of itself enabled to haunt somewhere. So think of animals that have an awareness of themselves. Cats, if you call their name, have an awareness of themselves. Dogs know who they are. They look in mirrors and they can recognize themselves and they'll come. Horses are the same. So sentient beings can haunt other places. The problem you then get is then that differentiation between animals that know who they are Because you can only think yourself to a location if you know about you. Do you see what I mean? You can only be haunted by your mother if you have an awareness of what the term mother actually is. You know, I wonder if some animals that are hatched, like birds, for instance, don't have any awareness of what their mother is or the concept of mother the moment they flow in the nest. So in my experience, I have seen ghost cats. I have recorded ghost dogs and I've seen ghost horses, but it's dependent in my belief that you have to have an awareness of yourself to be able to haunt somewhere, to put yourself there. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. What types of EVPs did you get on these battlefields?
1: Um most of the um well there's a differentiation of course between an evp and actually um responses from the ghost box the evps themselves sounded residual to me it was the sounds of battle what's more interesting and what gives me the detail is some of the ghost box evidence and i've used an old ghost box now that i've had for 25 years and i firmly believe that you know being a reiki master for example if you're dealing with energy You know if you can produce energy yourself if you're working with equipment that has your energy in it and you've you've used it a thousand times over the last 25 years i think those devices can sing for you i've got friends and colleagues within my paranormal team i'm the founder of the International Paranormal Society. And I've got colleagues that will use a specific type of ghost box, like an SB7, and they get all the answers out of it, like they're interviewing somebody uh, in the same way that you and me are doing that now with stimulus and response answers. And I have picked up the same device out of my kit and got absolutely nothing and vice versa. So there must be a reason for this. So the ghost box I use is one of the old original ones that you used to hack Um, from radio shack back in the day and it just scans backwards and forwards but it's got my energy in it and it just sings i can have full conversations so to answer your question there was people on both sides of the battles i investigated wood lake would be another example um i had a gentleman come through mr wakeman came through chris wakeman came through and he was the son of chief little crow and he was only 15 at the time and uh, no one knew whether he had actually participated in any of these battles. And he came through to speak to me and we exchanged some words in Dakota, which is a very difficult language for a European to learn. And so to answer your question, it's lots of um, Native Americans that were there that I have record of, and I'm asking them about the conflict, I'm asking them about their views, Uh, their soldiers, some were injured, Um, some of them died in battle and I've got notes of them and I've done the research on them and it's all empirical evidence. I think the thing um, that astounds people is that I can sit and talk to you about this for hours, but there'll be people out there saying, I can't believe you can talk to ghosts. Why don't we all know about this? The fact remains that if you go to my websites, if you come to my lectures, if you come to my talks, I play all this and you can actually hear them responding to me and having conversations with me as clear as a bell. So that scepticism, you know, is somewhat removed when you have empirical evidence, you know, because society requires the fact that science has to prove it first. E- even though that me and you know fully well that science always follows, you know, our knowledge and wisdom and always brings up the rear. We're not following science. Science follows us and proves what we already thought we knew, to be honest. Um, so we can play all these for you. They're, they're empirical. You can hear them.
0: You know. You must
1: have really good energy Say that uh, again uh, I must have what?
0: Really good energy Because you know When I've handled cases out here That involve the spirits of Native Americans They really don't want to talk much
1: I think Several things happen If you've been doing this long enough I think the spirit world talks amongst themselves So having done this for so long And published so many books I think in spirit they have an awareness of who you are and that you're gonna listen to them fairly and do proper research and actually give them a voice. And I think that's known um, within the spirit world. I think that sense of being a Reiki master, I think the sense of doing proper research You know, it's always impressive if you go into a building, but you know who built it, you know who lived there. And that's a catalyst for a conversation. If you pass Charlotte and I say to you in spirit, I'm going to write a chapter about you in a book, but I need you to come through and spell your name for me because I want to get it right. You know, human beings have an ego. You know, you would do everything possible at that point, wouldn't you, that's available to you to say to me how you spell your name. And I defy any human being not to want to do the same. So there is a list of things that makes this possible that I think we've sort of discovered and it's evolved over a period of time and a number of books. I'm on my 14th book now and I've been doing this for 25 years. And I'm sure the spirits must be aware of who you are and what you're doing. So when you arrive, they're all ready to go. I turn the ghost box on and there's that sense of intention. I'll give you a brief example. Last Friday, I was at a car showroom called Unique Classic Cars in Mankato, which is very famous due to the Dakota War because the biggest uh, collective execution in American history took place there when 38 Native Americans were killed by a hanging on the 26th of December 1862 but there was a car there that used to be owned by Johnny Cash so last Friday I investigated the car in the showroom and I'd already put the intention out there I've done my research I'm asking him questions like a chat show host would ask questions the energy is high there's things I think Johnny Cash would want to say to clear his name he was uh, a Seven times, even though he wasn't charged, and there's lots of things I thought he would want to set the record straight on. So if you come on with research, if you come on with knowledge, that they will give you the answers.
0: That's interesting, interesting. And I've also found, like, like you say, um, they are and they are there listening to what we're saying because I've done investigations where we're up late at night, we're kind of tired, so we're kind of we're kind of BSing you know, back and forth, and they'll, they'll pop in with something related to our conversation.
1: Oh, you're 100% correct. We turn our DVRs on the moment we walk into the building, and some of our best DVPs is when we're setting up equipment or we're chatting about last night's soccer match or whatever it happens to be, and they're actually contributing. One of the best ones I got that was a good example of this is we investigated a giant mansion house in Superior so it's up in Lake Superior in North Wisconsin. It's a huge building called the Fairlawn Building. And I think it's got something like 36 rooms. It's a huge, huge building. When we were setting up the equipment, you could hear my team members chatting amongst themselves. And progressively, I have recorded over the years, spirits that are speaking to one another, whilst just setting up equipment as if to say, who are they? What are they doing? And they're having a conversation amongst themselves. So in the background, and this is an EVP, there's no equipment running. Um, you could hear a little girl in the background saying, mummy, mummy, mummy you know i don't know whether you have children or not but every every mother listening is aware of the mummy 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 constant kind of family guy thing that young children do and in the middle of that child and there's no children in the building of course in the middle of that you hear a mother saying i'm here it's okay i'm here so we've got this amazing evp of a child in the background of us setting up our equipment, asking for her mother, and then the mother stepping in and saying, it's okay, I'm here, which is remarkable. You know, there's a whole world going on as a meta-narrative outside of our own dimension that we're completely unaware of, and they're going about their own business, and we just happen to be getting little snippets of that along the way. It's wholly remarkable. That is. It is. is.
0: Um, What would you say is one of the most active or haunted battlefields that you have investigated
1: um i, I would say that birch cooney was pretty crazy just because it was two days of solid action and, and with a great loss of life um In Britain, for example, we have lots of battles that have taken place on our soil. You know, we've had the Vikings, the Saxons, the Romans. We've had the Spanish. The French have tried to add a nibble. You know, we've had to defeat Germany a couple of times. You know, everyone has wanted a little nibble of us at some point in the past. And I'll tell you a quick anecdote. Obviously, I have a British accent and I was living in Salk Centre, which is plumb in the middle of Minnesota, and a gentleman came in to a metaphysical store I was actually working in at the time. And he heard my accent, and he was wearing camouflage and he was wearing orange, and it was deer hunting season, which is huge in Minnesota with all our lakes and forests, of course. And very randomly to me, he said, I'll tell you why America will never be invaded. And I said, Well, I've got a choice to make now. Do I take the bait or do I just leave it? So I took the bait, and I said, Well, why is that? And he said, because everyone has a gun and anyone who invades us, they know that we're all armed. And I said, but Britain's not been invaded since 1066 and we don't have guns. And his response was, yes, but you have nothing worth having. So, wow, that's a little mean. We've got some of the best shortbread and cakes in the world, I was led to believe. So, you know, going back to the Second World War, for example, um, there's a Napoleonic uh, fault Uh, that was actually built a long time before that in the 1530s called Tilbury Fault. And it's on the estuary of the Thames. And it's a really strategic point. It stops people coming up the Thames and getting straight into the centre of London. Even during the Second World War, they would have anti-aircraft guns looking to shoot down as many German planes as possible before they dropped their bombs in London. And they actually have the wreckage of an old German Heinkel, a bomber, Um, On that particular uh, fault, you can see the wreckage. And it was just very interesting for me. This has happened a couple of times um, that I managed to pick up um, some of the crew of that Heinkel. I can speak some German. I actually worked in Germany uh, for a while and I know some German. So it's very interesting for me when I use the spirit box and I'm speaking in Italian, French or German. And in this case, there was a German crew. And another example, which would be uh, more closer to home. Is there's an airfield called Bovingdon Airfield in Hertfordshire, and uh, we gave it to the Americans to use during the Second World War, and they were flying giant Liberators out of there. So it's two miles long. These are very large aeroplanes that need a long distance to get off the ground and, and to come back in. And it was just very interesting picking up American air crews that were talking in spirit, when you're standing in the middle of Hertfordshire in Britain, in the middle of a windswept runway that's two miles long, and you're hearing the voices of American air crews chattering away and talking to you, uh, it's a very strange and interesting phenomenon. So yeah, I don't know whether we can sneak this into the idea of battlefields, but it's certainly conflict, it's certainly war. And uh, those would be some fun examples um, of, of air crews I've picked up in both German and American doing, doing investigations in Britain.
0: Are you doing residual stuff like the chatter on the radio, or are they physically, uh, or I don't know what to say physically, but are they talking to you?
1: They were talking to me. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, the American air crew that was coming in, um, the actual captain of that aircraft uh, was called Charlie. And he actually went through, I, I think there's seven members of that crew. They have a navigator. They have uh, a bomber. There's a, Poor guy sat in a little blister at the bottom of the aircraft who had a life expectancy of about 14 minutes. Um, So he's telling me all about his crew. He was giving me all their names. They were telling me where they were from. He was from Austin in Texas. And uh, he was worried that they weren't going to make it because they'd had uh, some sort of engine failure or they'd been um, shot at and he was struggling to, to make it and to come in. So uh, those weren't residual. I had proper conversations where they told me where they lived, and, and the captain of that particular aircraft actually went through and gave me the names of the crew, one after the other.
0: Well, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing you. The way you described the, uh, the poor gunner you know, at, the, at the bottom there, I've flown on V-17s, I've flown on V-26s, or v25 I thought but it's i mean to imagine somebody squeezing themselves down in there it's, it's it's no yeah
1: you you're really putting yourself in a in a vulnerable position i'm guessing the young 17 year old who's just arrived uh gets that job Um, Just to divert slightly, my granddad was in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War, and he was actually ground crew for bombers. So even though he was dealing with Lancasters and Wellingtons, uh, one of his jobs was to pull um, airmen out of burning aircraft. And there was a period when the Americans joined the Second World War that he was in Iceland in Reykjavik, and there was a crossover where the British were leaving and the Americans were arriving. And he actually got um, to pull American fighter pilots out of uh, burning aircraft, which was very unusual for an RAF um, personnel member to do. But, you know, all of these stories put me in mind of the bravery and the things that people like my granddad would do. And on both sides as well, you've got to remember that the majority of the Germans, for example, didn't want to take part in that as well, in the same way that we could talk about Ukraine now. And a lot of the Russian soldiers don't want to be there. They have little interest and uh you know they don't want to be there doing doing what they're told to do so i have no issue talking in german i have no issue you know you treat everyone with respect and uh you get the best results through doing that don't you and
0: battles in <laughs> the uk you look at our cousins fighting cousins. <laughs> you know and i think that's where a lot of the energy builds up on, on these war fields, too, because even over in the UK, you know, somebody from, from one section of England might be fighting somebody from another section of England, and it's irrelevant.
1: That certainly happened during the English Civil War. That Lots of Americans and people outside of Britain aren't aware of, of the English Civil War taking place in the 1640s. One in three people died in the whole of Great Britain in that conflict. It cost King Charles I his head. And Charles II was uh, was forced to live in, in France. He actually made us a republic for about nine years and not many people are aware of that particular conflict, but it did, you're absolutely right, cost a lot of lives. One of the ironies I found in studying the Dakota War, and it wasn't lost on me, is that the, the the Treaty of Prairie Duchenne in 1825 forced a lot of the Native Americans to be in the same area, whereas they wouldn't normally be together. So there suddenly became lots of conflicts between the Dakota Sioux, the Ojibwe, and the Salk Indians, where normally they wouldn't be in each other's territory. And it was very ironic for me that in 1862, the American The Ojibwe and the Dakota for fighting amongst themselves and actually put lots of sanctions in place at exactly the same time America was fighting amongst itself. So all the way through that conflict as a historian, it it doesn't make any sense. But you know, you can look back at wars and conflicts with hindsight, and very rarely do they make any sense, right?
0: That's true. true. You got the same thing going on in Ukraine, too, because I mean a lot of these Russians our relatives to people over over in the ukraine it's, it's you know it's twofold on it and it's kind of oh, yeah. like war
1: repeats itself it's all one big country if you look at a map if you look at a map let's look at africa it's all straight lines so ultimately you know those have been drawn with a ruler so somewhere along the line some empirical force whether it be from france belgium germany and britain has divided up the middle east and divided up africa with a ruler in nice straight lines but it doesn't work like that does it if you were born for example at the turn of the last century in bohemia You know, that has probably changed countries three or four times since then. It's been Hungary. It's been Austria. It's been the Czech Republic. It's wherever that happens to be at that time. A lot of people, especially in Minnesota, have relatives that are Prussian. And that's been Germany. That's been Poland. You know, certain countries like Poland and the Czech Republic um, didn't exist uh, before the the, the uh, First World War, I had someone come to me once. They'd found an old silver spoon in an antique shop, and they were very excited and said, I think this is really old. I think this spoon's 300 years old. And it had Made in Czechoslovakia written on it. And I said, well, it can't be that old, because Czechoslovakia only existed from 1918 onwards. And, and I unfortunately burst his bubble. But, you know, this is what historical research, you know, will do. And, and going back to your earlier question, I found a, a lot of people push back on me when I present historical research because there's certain buildings in Minnesota where they claim there's lawlessness, they claim people have been murdered, there's prostitution. If I had a dollar for every owner of a building that said it used to be a brothel here in the Midwest, I'd be rich. You would think all they did back in the day was fight each other and pay for sex. It's remarkable. Right. So right. historical research of this particular town says that no one's ever been murdered there. It's a really boring Irish-German dairy farming community, but they've built an entire revenue on bringing people into their hotel on the back of the fact it was a Wild West town. Well, Wild West towns don't exist in Minneapolis and Minnesota. You know, this is Arizona and the areas that you're currently living in. So, you know, going back to, to what you were saying earlier, you, you, you're right that historical research people push back on because they don't want to accept the facts that are historically correct because it dampens the, the, the sense that they can sell that property as being somewhere where something happened. And uh, I find that awkward as well. But as a historian, the problem with being a historian is if you get it wrong, it's going to be wrong forever. So there's certain things in history that have been badly researched or have become urban legend. and It's very difficult to go back on them. You know, Cleopatra wasn't Egyptian. The Hundred Years' War didn't last for a 100 years. Van Gogh didn't cut his entire ear off. There's certain things historically that have been written and we've now discovered are wrong. And you can't go back and undo that. It's almost impossible. It's ingrained now in a historical DNA. So the pressure on a historian to get it right is really important because you then can't change it at some point in the future, like the examples I've just given you. So I want to get it right in these buildings and I don't care if they're unhappy or not, but there's certainly some pushback on that.
0: And I'm also sure there's there's also people who don't want that history out, especially if it's, if it looks bad for, and I, I don't want to do a race war or anything like that, but especially if it looks bad for one race versus another race.
1: Well, I'm happy to go in there and do the race war because at the Battle of Wood Lake, it was actually the U.S. soldiers that were scalping the Dakota Sioux on the battlefield. And uh, Colonel Henry Sibley, who was leading the troops, had to stop them and say, we don't do that. We're Christian men. So a lot of the atrocities that have been labelled against the Native Americans were actually um, put in place um, by the U.S. Army. And of course, I've got the British flag behind me. And of course, you know, we have a long history of uh, empirical overview of certain countries, and we discussed Africa. It was during the Boer War, during the 1890s and early 19th century, that we invented the idea of concentration camps. That's a British invention. I mean, obviously, it's just a concentration of people, uh, and that was used during the U.S.-Dakota War as well. But there's a good example um, in british history where that was actually put in place where lots of people died of disease just by being concentrated in a small piece of land that's fenced off
0: see i find that history, and there's been a lot of history over the years that has been covered up because of stuff like that you know where they don't want that out and it's sad because that all has to come forward everybody should know about it
1: the first casualty of war is the truth. So if you want that' should be on one of my books somewhere, oh, but that's what you're that's what you're fighting against. That's what you're having to to deal with. and of course it's it's been said that the winner writes the history, but retrospectively, you can go back now with that sort of methodology. Um what I studied um for my master's, Um, was the actual methodology of history. So ways in which you write about history, different methodologies of going uh, about writing about their history. You don't have to write about it just in terms of chronological order. You can look at it from a period eye of putting yourself in that place. You can look at it from a Marxist perspective. There's a feminist aspect to that as well, especially within art history, when you consider that there were actually as many female artists as male artists, but only 5% of art galleries have female artists in them, and and 90% of the paintings are of naked women. So you know there's a huge feminist uh, art history movement as well. So there's different ways of looking at how to go about writing history, and it's starting to go back retrospectively and starting to find the truth for some of the things that were written about and were, were blatantly untrue. A absolutely yeah i mean you have as much responsibility to the spirits as you do to the living i believe i don't know if this happens to you but i have some psychic skills and there's been occasions where i've been in walmart doing some shopping minding my own business and a spirit's come up to me and it's been very persistent and has been prodding me in the arms saying that's my daughter over there and i want to talk to them and i now have a dilemma Do I randomly walk up to some strange woman in a Walmart supermarket grocery store with a British accent and say, I've got your mother with me who died three weeks ago. But I actually am brave enough to do that because I think my responsibility lies with the spirit. That might be the only opportunity that spirit ever gets to connect with their daughter, because I happen to be standing next to her daughter in line at the cash register in Walmart. So you may be of an age similar to myself where we don't care about making a fool of ourselves anymore. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. So on those occasions, I have stepped forward and said, look, I'm a psychic. This is what I do. Your mother wants to talk to you. Her name's Shelly. I asked the spirit to give me some information. I just can't walk up to somebody and say, I think your mother's here. So I say to the spirit, look, I'll do it. you're going to have to give me something to work with or I'm going to look terrible going up to this woman who's grieving. So I think to answer your questions, it is important because you have much responsibility to the spirits as you do to the living and you can only judge the present by what's left to you from the past. So the more of the past that we can write about and the more of the past that we can get right, that then informs the present and you would think more people would need to look at that when you consider what's going on in parts of Europe at the moment.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, shift gears a little bit. What do you think is the most haunted castle in uh, the UK?
1: Um, Wow. That's a question. Um, Again, it's dependent on many things. Um, Two spring to mind straight away, the tower of London um, is actually a castle. It's a Norman keep and it's been built up around, around uh, several hundred years. Uh, I think primarily because it's in the heart of London Uh, There's so many visitors there on a daily basis. The energy is still kept high, but people were executed there. People were held uh, in the jail. In fact, they had a lot of German spies held there um, during the Second World War and people were beheaded. So it is a, a location where there's been lots of deaths. There's been lots of anguish. The two princes suddenly disappeared and were walled up. You know in the tower if you know anything about british history back in the day so the tower is certainly a very haunted building and it's probably the one that has the most documented hauntings about it if we stretch further afield edinburgh castle in scotland you may be familiar with and they have vaults that run underneath the city and again it's just a sense of history it's been under siege um there's been lots of deaths there and these are all a a good recipe for having lots of uh, activity, I guess. But it doesn't have to be a castle that's still standing. There's lots of earthworks. Fort Ridgely, um, not a million miles away from where I am am right now, was under siege for three days during the U.S.-Dakota War with a large loss of lives. And the only thing that's left is some earthworks. There's no walls standing there anymore, but you still get that sense of energy, and you can still walk around the ruins and get the paranormal activity that's making the goosebumps on your arms stand up.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've been on investigations with psychics where they've walked into walls because they're able to see—they're able to see the building for what it was before it was changed. I, I, I've that's
1: never done that. That's never happened to me. <laughs> I'm obviously not good enough.
0: <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense because the ghost—you know—that's that, connected to that building is still going to see it as it was.
1: I would agree with you. And it is important to put equipment in doorways. I did an investigation last year in a fabulous little Dutch town called Pella, which is just south of Des Moines. And it was Wyatt Earp's childhood home. And I put a lot of equipment in all of the doors because those doors have been there for some time and people are still traveling through them. I think if you've got muscle memory, a spirit would still go through that doorway. there's a church quite close to where my parents live on the Essex coast. Uh, east of London and that church dates back to the sixth century and I just think it's amazing that from the sixth century onwards you have that residual energy of the people going through the gate and walking through the door of the church up and down the path and of course in spirit you wouldn't think for one moment that they would just walk through the wall and randomly walk through the side of the church you stick to the path and you have that muscle memory and that constant groove in history if you like of those people using that that walkway i mean that's 1400 years of people walking backwards and forwards on the same path why would you put your equipment anywhere else
0: makes a lot of sense i mean my grandfather i see him from time to time in my hallway going from my photo studio to the bathroom because he would go down that hallway that was his bedroom but every saturday night eight o'clock he'd take a bath
1: yeah, and you so, haven't heard the bath running, have you? There's not been water I not in the bath. I've
0: seen him leave that bedroom and go in the bathroom.
1: I will tell you a quick story. That my mother and father are borderline atheists, and they both come from a science background. Uh, and I'm a constant disappointment to them, of course. Um, but my mother recently admitted to me that she came out of the bathroom of the house I grew up in. And this is in East London, but the house doesn't have any age to it. It was built in the 1930s, although the front of the house, where my bedroom used to be, was destroyed uh, by a bomb in the Second World War. Ironically, I have photographs of the front of the house being uh, destroyed because we lived quite close to a Second World War Spitfire airfield. And of course, they wanted to bomb the airfield going back to the Second World War. But my mother admitted to me recently that she walked out of the bathroom And there was a small Dickensian looking boy looking up at her, you know, with the flat cap and and how you'd expect a Victorian child to be. And my mother did something that impressed me. And and very rarely have I said that in life. She comes from a very science background. And this just I thought was fantastic. She didn't scream. She didn't run. She didn't make a fuss. She said very scientifically to this ghost child that she's just seen looking at her in the hallway, she said, please don't disappear. And the child disappeared. But I thought that was really cool to say that.
0: <laughs> that is cool. Wow. 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 yep she
1: believes a little bit more now.
0: What do you say to people that want to go out and investigate? Do you, do you think um, that, that that they need to be able to have somebody on on the team like you that, that are able to do that historical research? Is that really an important facet?
1: it's important in the terms of that you have a catalyst if i've got a list of all the people that have died in that building or previous owners if someone comes through and say their name's john for example i can say was that john smith that was there in 1904 and i've got a list of questions for him also how many times charlotte on an investigation have you sat there with absolutely nothing happening for hours on end It's useful to have a knowledge of the history of the building because when that happens, what you can then do is resort to plan B, which is Hi, John, are you there? I'd really love to talk to you because you turned this building in 1904 from a billiard hall into a grocery store. And I'd be interested to know what you did. I'd be interested to know if you still hang out here. What do you think of the renovations that have been done recently? And there's a whole raft of questions to then ask. So, historical research is important because it informs your investigation. I'll tell you one thing. Lots of investigation teams go into buildings with the idea that they want to prove that ghosts exist. Okay, we don't do that. That's irrelevant. I did that 25 years ago. I don't need to prove to me or anyone else that ghosts exist. It's it's an irrelevance. What I now need to do is to ask them questions. I need to now use them. Okay, ghosts exist. What do we now do with that? So all the investigations I do now, I'm there for a reason. I'm not there just to run equipment and see if a ghost arrive. I've got notes. I've got equipment. I've got all of my questions worked out. I know exactly what I want to get, who I want to talk to, what I want to ask them about. And this now brings a focus. This now brings intention. It brings the idea that you're there for a reason. You can then start asking your questions and running your equipment with an ultimate goal of what you want to achieve, rather than just sitting there running equipment and seeing what turns up. And it really makes a difference to the investigation in terms of your evidence and what then decides to come along. I agree.
0: I run my career. Nothing drives me more nuts than to sit an investigation and go, are you a man or a woman? You know what I mean? What? ah it just it drives me insane i like to go well, in and know what we're dealing with or who we might be dealing with and then take the questions from there
1: yeah i'll take last friday as an example i'm investigating johnny cash's last car before he died mm-hmm. it's a 2001 lincoln town car cartier l it's done twelve and a half thousand miles it's sat there we want to contact johnny cash okay what do we want to ask him you? what's your favorite song um, who was your inspiration who was uh, what was Elvis Presley like when you met him at Sun Studios in 1956 how did you fall out with Sam Phillips in Sam Studios um, you were arrested for causing a fire at Los Padres uh, National Park in California and you said you never did it but you know the papers said that you were on drugs and you lit a fire so did you do it were you on drugs is June with you um, your brother Jack died on a table saw accident um, and nearly cut himself in half. And you said that when you die, you wanted to meet your brother, Jack. So was Jack with you? Did you meet Jack? In 1988, you had a heart operation and said you had an out of body experience. So is that what heaven is like for you is that what it's like now is it similar to what you experienced in 1988 i've got pages of stuff and there's a reason for me being there and there's a reason why i want to talk to him other than the fact you're asking johnny cash if he misses hot dogs or not
0: absolutely
1: And he answered all those questions, by the way.
0: <laughs> well, when we do a prelim, it's it's a two-hour prelim. Right. You know, even a residence, because we want to get as much information as we can. And then I go back, do the research, and then you know, we have a pretty good idea of what we're dealing with and who, because it's just a way otherwise it's a waste of time.
1: I, I would agree with you, it's very expensive and getting my team members from all over the Midwest in one place with hotel accommodation, food and everything else. But I think it's important to do it in situ as well i have very good members of my team that are ready to do research when we're actually there i was in the back of the surf ballroom in iowa which was the last venue that buddy holly played in before he died because his plane crashed you know a couple of miles up the road uh at one two o'clock in the morning uh going north and uh, we were standing outside the surf ballroom and you think of all the artists And all the people that have traveled through there since the 1930s onward, every major rock and roll star has been in that building. So we were standing in the back and a gentleman came through and said his name was Ed. And psychically, I'm thinking I should know who this is. And to cut a long story short, it was Eddie Cochran who sang come on everybody summertime blues and he was born in albert lee just 15 miles north of there so we did research in the moment where i said to him are you eddie cochran and he said yes and at that moment i've got members of my team researching his background and saying okay well where was you born and he said i was born in albert lee well we now know this so we're doing um, research with modern technology in situ as the moment in real time as it happens, because you don't always know who's going to come through. And we're prepared for that as well.
0: Is there a difference uh, between investigating in the United States and investigating in the UK?
1: <laughs> That's a great question and very rarely asked. Yes, it is. Um, it reflects our personalities. So uh, I don't want to start talking all stereotypes, but this is what you're going to get, Charlotte. Um, Brits are very um, introspective we don't want to make a noise we want to sit there quietly if you're on the subway or the underground trains in the rush hour you'll hear a pin drop we're a very quiet introspective um, race so when we investigate there is that habit of sitting there quietly and not wanting to engage so much not being so gregarious so confrontational so so forward with the questions uh, in America, you're more likely to step in and, and, and start saying, are you here? What's your name? And, and it's more like bird spotting in Britain where you're waiting for that. I think there's a happy medium between the two. And perhaps I embrace that and bring the two things together very well. It used to be true as well that we rely less on equipment. So we're more liable to take notes. We're more liable to rely on our ears and our eyes and what we're sensing around us. I think America is more um, equipment heavy, I think with technology in this country, and it's getting over to Britain. um, I remember taking a ghost box from here back to Britain once, and they thought this was the best thing that had ever been invented and and never seen one before. So it used to be much more equipment heavy uh, in America as well. So those would be the the two reasons I would guess, just stereotypical personality types, I guess. And I think there's a happy medium between both of those things. Because if you sit there quietly for three hours and don't say anything, why would you come through? You have to ask. Uh, and the, the equipment would be the second one. Great question, though.
0: That's fascinating. So, uh, what's next for you?
1: I've been researching for the last three or four years, and I touched upon this with Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran. Al Capone and uh, Johnny Cash. I've spent the last three to five years with my team traveling all over America, and I'm writing a book about all of the famous dead celebrities that I've interviewed. So I've been to the Buddy Holly crash site in Iowa. I've spoken to Buddy Holly. Uh, I spoke to Lizzie Borden in Massachusetts at her graveside. Um, We've spoken with Johnny Cash. We've spoken with John Dillinger. We've spoken with uh, Wyatt Earp. I mentioned and this long list of actors rock stars politicians Um, a good one we did was in metropolis on the Kentucky um, Illinois border where we spoke to George Reeves the Superman who died mysteriously back in the late 50s and early 60s and we asked him if he'd actually shot himself or whether he was murdered so it's amazing asking buddy Holly at the site of the crash why the plane crashed and actually getting answers um coming back so we're resolving mysteries we're talking to celebrities and i think the book will be called dead and famous and uh, it's going to be out in the summer i finished all the chapters the one on johnny cash was the last one in the book and uh, we should be coming out with that soon if you can talk to people and interview them like we've discussed for the last hour why can't we talk to marilyn monroe and ask them what happened why can't we talk to JFK? Why can't we talk to Charles Lindbergh? And, and what was the kidnapping case about? Suddenly, every famous person who's ever lived, we can chat to them and resolve mysteries and resolve some of the questions we have. So that's what I'm doing from now on in and where I find my time, chatting to Marilyn Monroe and JFK.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're going to yeah. It comes out. It comes out.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to come back. We can discuss anything you want. I have UFOs up my sleeve and all kinds of crazy things. So anytime you want me on, I'll be happy to sit and chat.
0: Sounds great. How can people find you?
1: Oh, wow. Lots of ways. Um, You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, You can find me on Amazon and everything on my bio on Amazon will lead you to all of my sites. So look up Adrian Lee on Amazon. You'll see my books and my bio. I have a website dedicated solely to my team called Int paranormal.net that's int short for international in um, net. we have so much stuff out there that if you can't find me you've only got yourself to blame
0: <laughs> all right well thank you so much and again I would love to. I would love to talk with you again I've, I've learned so much and it, you're fun to talk to
1: that's very kind of you some say I talk too much but when you've got the British accent I think I can get away with it a little bit <laughs> there
0: you go there you go well thank you Adrian I really appreciate you coming on
1: Well, why don't you find me some interesting sites to investigate in California with famous people attached and I'll bring my team over and we'll do it How does that sound?
0: Sounds good to me. Sounds perfect. All right. I was hoping you wouldn't
1: say no. That would have been embarrassing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I'm all for that. I'm good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later and I really appreciate you coming on and I can't wait to have you on after you get your book done.
1: That's very kind of you. Great questions. I appreciate you asking me. Bye-bye, everybody.
0: Bye-bye. All right, that was Adrian Lee, and uh, we learned a lot. where I learned a lot about you know investigating here, investigating in the UK. I'm fascinated by by the like I said, I I, I was in London uh, in England, and I'm fascinated by the UK ghosts. If you like the show and you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. If you uh, take a look at the YouTube site, you'll see that we have over two hundred and fifty videos over there, different topics. You know, it's not all paranormal. We like to vary our topics. So please subscribe. We're looking for subscribers. Also, uh, if you're interested in learning uh, the procedures that my team uses to ghost hunt, you can do that on the 21st at 11 a.m. Pacific. I'm going to be teaching a ghost hunting 101 class. It's going to be an online class, but I'm going to be teaching that. So check out the California Haunts Meetup page. And on the 28th, I'll also be teaching a psychic development class for, for people who are st- starting out as, uh, you know, Psychic, so I could teach you how to open and close that door and and, and learn how to do it safely by, you know for protection and all that stuff. So if you want to learn that, again check out the California Haunts Meetup site. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, or equal opportunity here, share it with five people. You know, like I said, we're equal opportunity here. We're trying to get the word out about this show. YouTube shows us no love. So we want to gain that love, right? Uh, we do have a TikTok also under California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team and We're going to have clips from this interview on that that TikTok site within the next day or so here. Uh, Go ahead and visit our website, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. That also has all our videos there. In fact, you can go back through our archives for the last two years there, as well as our Blog Talk archives, because we were on Blog Talk for like six years, six, seven years. So I'm in the process of putting those on there. So go ahead and check that site out as well. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really, really appreciate all of you. Uh, each and every one of you listeners, especially you know the you know the podcast folks that listen and the people that are watching live, I really appreciate it. And the people, the first timers that came in tonight, thank you so much for coming. Tomorrow, Randall Fitzgerald is going to be with us, and he's going to be talking about alien abduction and UFOs. So uh, that'll be at our usual time, at 6:30 p.m. Pacific, and uh, we'll be here talking alien abductions, UFOs. Anyway, uh, you see that ticker running along the bottom. That's because uh, California Haunts takes no money to do anything. We go out do these investigations, and it comes out of our pocket. And just like the radio show here, it comes out of my pocket. Computer breaks, uh, light goes out, something goes wrong. I have to pay for it out of pocket. So if you can kind of help us out, keep us on the air, keep us bringing in really good guests, I'd appreciate it. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you have a Venmo account, type in California Haunts and you're there. Anyway, I really appreciate everything you guys do for me and uh, the people that have donated in the past. I appreciate each and every one of you. I see Linda came in today. Jerry's there today. Marisa was here today. I've got um, Aaron here today and a few others that came in tonight. I really appreciate you listening. I want to thank you all and I will see you tomorrow. And I'm going to run some information about our guest really quick here for you guys so you know how to get a hold of him as well. So I got website, intparanormal.net, and a a few of his books, Ghosts and UFOs by Adrian Lee, How to Be a Christian Psychic, Adrian Lee again. And Mysterious Minnesota. Adrian Lee again. Sounds like an award show. (laughs) And of course, they're available at Amazon.com. Anyway, once again, thank you so much, and I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good one.